Hello and welcome to our final um, Myth episode for 2019. Penultimate episode. Welcome to our penultimate episode of our coverage for Myth 2019. We're going to do it? one next weekend that yes, kind of encompasses it. But oh, yeah. Yeah, um, it's, the, it's the movies. We'll talk about movies that have like bled yeah. from the festival into cinematic release into, our brains. into the- theatrical release <laughs> they do a few of them do have that tendency to just seep out and well we're here out. with Alex a- Mack style anyway yeah. oh we got into a green globule into a <laughs> we're here with an eco keep cup to collect all these globules and put them into your ears um, I'm Andy Hazel I'm Andy Sears and I'm Eloise Ross and we're Cultural Capital and we're going to talk to you for a little bit about the l- films we saw in the toward the end of Myth we've still got two more days of the festival to go but there's a whole bunch of movies we saw in the last week and we kind of need to collect ourselves um, metaphorically and literally in one place to be able to talk about them. Um, Anders, are there films that you th- are going to pay attention to in this episode in particular? Uh, yes, I think Eloise and I are going to chat the lodge. Um, I loved End of the Century, a film that seems to be dividing opinions mm. online, but I loved it, loved it, loved it. I think it may be my favourite film of the festival, so I look forward right. to ext- Banding on that and saying why. And I had a bit of a queer week this week, so I might pop in thoughts on Sequin in a Blue Room. Excellent. Sydney grinder thriller. Yes. <gasps> a couple of other things that I've seen recently, or Dwelling in the Fulton Mountains, I Yeah, saw. cool. Okay. Yeah, loved it. Really, really adored that film. Look, I have taken a few days off in the last, you know, second week of the festival. Good, Take it yeah. down a gear. Yeah. Although my temperament wouldn't seem to suggest that because I am, as both Andy and Anders would um, certify, Incredibly delirious right now. Yeah, certifiable. <laughs> no. I copy that certification. <laughs> that was a vague attempt at a film reference. Anyway, <laughs> certified copy. Great film. Great film. Andy, what are you going to talk about? Well, I really, I saw um, the Wild Goose Lake. Uh, oh, that's Dio divided film. opinions. Mm, yes. It? There's a lot to dig into there. And Ben Wheatley's film, uh, Happy New Year, Colin Bursford. Great. Which is very interesting as well. Cool. Yes, uh, that sort of surprised me. I mean, recently discovered that Ben yeah. Wheatley had a film in this. I festival. know, and you can never tell what you're going to get next with Ben Wheatley. He's an errant filmmaker. So tell me about the lodge. So, how would you feel about going to the mountains for Christmas with Grace to get to know you guys? You okay? I don't want to leave you here with the kids if you're not feeling up to it. Uh, I'm feeling fine. It was my idea, and it's a couple days. I can do a couple days. Okay, guys, I'm off. Have fun. What is that? Well, I saw The Lodge last night and have a lot of opinions about it. So I was not really feeling like going to the movies and I was kind of lying around at home and I texted Anders and said, Anders, is it worth getting out of bed to go to the lodge? Because you had been, in fact, the one who brought it to my attention Mm. as a film worthwhile and I love Riley Keough. And I did, in fact, get out of bed to go and see the lodge and I hated it so much. I thought it was... Can we give our listeners a bit of a brief, like an explanation as right, to what it Anders, is? Do you want to? Yeah, so let us know what okay, it's about. Okay, so this is Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala's follow-up to Goodnight Mummy. Um, basically, uh, according to the Myth Program Guide, a snowstorm traps Grace, played by Riley Keogh, in an isolated Alpine lodge with her boyfriend Richard, played by Richard Armitage's two kids. Um, the, she has so okay. So Grace is the sole survivor of an evangelical cult. Um, her husband, well, sorry, her partner, Richard, um, seems to have this intensely weird fascination with cults. He, he writes 
uh, books about them. Uh, and basically, she has a very strained relationship with his kids who miss their mother, who was played by uh, Alicia Silverstone in the film in a very small supporting role. Right. Um, that's basically the setup. They spend time uh, in this Snowden lodge, the uh, Riley Keogh's character and the two kids, and things start getting a bit weird. Okay, because it did have a bit of hype leading into it. Like, people were like, this is meant to be really good. Like, there was a lot of promise. Because I think Goodnight Mummy won a lot of Yeah, films, I think right? I think Goodnight Mummy is a much stronger film than this, although mm-hmm. this, well, it's very interesting. But I'd, I'm not sure that I hated it as much as you did. But yeah, t- let's hello. hear, tell us. Well, I didn't see Goodnight Mummy, so I went into it purely on, you know, the hype that came only from Anders. <laughs> I love that I'm solely responsible for this. <laughs> you are, you are. But I I just thought it was a, like, it's a fascinating concept. I, it's not, you know, the only film that ever decided to, you know, isolate people in a Snowden Lodge and then uh, make a horror film out of it, right? But the kind of all the backstory, the intricacies about the, the alleged perpetrator slash possible victim of this weird horror shit happening is someone who is a sole survivor of this cult who we find out early on in the film, every member of the cult committed suicide in order to like ascend to a higher plane and to impress their God, um, except her at the age of 12. And so this, this guy's children kind of think that she's a weird psychopath and then weird things start happening in the house. So, like, they all lose their their belongings, yeah. go missing. Um, so, essentially, it's this setup that kind of suggests that it's a supernatural horror. And the strength of a lot of horrors is where you think maybe it's a supernatural horror, but you're not quite sure and it could just be, like, a psychological horror kind of thing. Yeah. And that if there's a, a, a doubt about what the truth is and what in fact universe we're in that's where the strength is and this film kind of plays on that I think really well in its setup but the the revelation of the so we might discuss some spoilers in this episode I you know in order to kind of nut out what it's doing right and, and incorrectly so if you haven't seen this film um, and you wanted to take a few minutes off then we'll let you know when it's safe to come back in but essentially the moment at which, you know, it's revealed what kind of universe we're, we're dealing with in this film is really underplayed. Yeah, it I is, isn't it? I didn't find that, Anders. It like, is. It's kind of suspected earlier on. But when it's eventually unveiled, there's no dramatic tension. There's no, like, beat that kind of says, pause, let's... You know, pause for dramatic effect, <laughs> um, as simple as that could be. And so it's really, there's no time for the, the audience to say, okay, great, I'm on board with this now. It like, kind of, oh my God. Or, yeah, yeah, like it's a kind of a brilliant premise. And I just found that overall the film was really poorly carried out. Mm. The, the pacing of it was all wrong. In terms of who they wanted us to align with as an audience to, you know, whom of the main characters because there's essentially two, maybe three different groups, I think, who we could align with is is not very well kind of demarcated. Um, And also, I just thought it was really ugly. So someone just told me it was the same cinematographer and forgive me, I haven't looked it up, as who did... It follows. Oh yeah, um, and some of you know, there's a, there's a lot of that like slow sinister panning. Yeah, there is almost too much to begin with. I thought, you know, I was just like back off a little bit, but 
the lenses, I don't know, the lenses just seemed like those lenses that a real estate agent uses when they photograph a house in order to make it look, yes, rooms look bigger. Right. Um, and they just end up looking unrealistic and off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe like looking off was the point, but they just, they didn't even look good. So basically the whole of this film, the settings were great. I love creepy interiors like claustrophobia, but all of those, none of those things were really done very well. Mm. Right. And there was something else that I loved about it, but for now, let's get Anders. What did you think? Well, it's a, see what I liked about it. I think was it's very quiet, like maybe even too quiet. It is a very subdued kind of horror and mood. And then what I originally dug, but have now sort of begun to be a little bit just troubled by maybe is really the the ending and what that suggests about I mean in this case perhaps trauma or the, I mean we're I again you know th- this is there's no way to talk about this without spoiling um mm. but the way it just how easily I mean can I should I just outright yeah yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. just how easily grace reverts back to this state that she seems to have been deprogrammed from. Easily, Do you know what I mean? It? Like because I just felt like she very quickly suddenly yeah. switched and was, you know, hadn't taken her pills for two days and And it's was like that's poorly crazy. scripted because there's a suggestion that that's the that's the you know possible possibility. Yeah. But then it does happen very quickly, you know, much like the kind of ending and much like in fact the inciting incident of the film where the dad it's like, let's go on a holiday and then just leaves. You know, like, I mean, I know that we have to forgive certain things when it comes to a film. Mm. But the dad inviting his new girlfriend and kids who hate her. And then leaving with no and then leaving explanation. With, like, <laughs> yeah. literally he's like, let's go away for a week to the snow. And then the day they arrive, he's like, I'm going back to town for two days. Right. It's also entirely <laughs> inappropriate to leave someone in a snowed-in lodge without a car. Like, anyway, I mean, I, all of these yeah. sorts of things. This is like the stuff that when it's a film, you need to forgive it. But yeah, horror you, you films know, particularly, maybe. You would yeah. rather not have to when these things are so simple to yeah, kind of like move they past. They are potential stumbling blocks, but aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of like script things that were maybe not entirely worked through in that sense that that was suggested, but when it actually happened, it was so quick. Yeah, and so then I was left with thinking, oh, well, actually, this is actually quite disturbing mm. because it's suggesting something that's quite challenging to think, you know, for all of the therapy or the, all of the recovery that you go through from trauma, yep. it's just there. But I, I do wonder whether it's... And I've seen people argue that it's actually offensive to, for the film to be doing that. Yeah. And so that is... I, I, I don't know, but I think I think that's the, where the film's sort of power is, is in this bringing it back to uh, psychology and how you feel about that. You know, I can, I can, I can see where people who would be offended by that, you know, are coming from. But I think I agree with you in that it is. It looks a bit muddy too. Mm. The interiors. Um, yeah, I was kind of like, like there's one point yeah. in the film at which it makes narrative sense that no one turns the lights on, but prior to that, it makes no sense at all. And I. I mean, you know, it's a little facetious to say, why don't you just turn the lights on? But I was literally thinking that, and I've seen a lot of horror films, and I don't always think that. Yeah. <laughs> and so in this regard, I was, it was just, it seemed like it was too 
convenient yeah, sure. that that yeah. they had all of these settings that were just primed for horror scenarios. Yeah, interesting. Mm. It didn't really work for me. It it does make me think, God, these filmmakers really hate kids like they do because Goodnight Mummy hates kids. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was, yeah. you know, that was maybe, you know, I'm not going to say troubling thing, but that was one of the worst things about the film. I was like, what these kids have done, essentially they gaslight this woman. Yeah. Um, into thinking that sh- she's crazy. I mean, that's obviously what gaslighting is. Yeah. But because it's a joke, because they don't like her. And the fact that they don't see the ramifications of what's happening up until the point at which they realise, oh, fuck, it's actually really, really, really severe what we've done. There's no sense of, like, you know, them gradually realising. Mm. Like, if they were to realise... In reality, if they would have realised what they'd done, they would have realised it much earlier, like at least two days earlier in, in film time. And so that doesn't make any sense to me. So essentially they're, they're like, they're irredeemable, these kids. And what I love, you know, you say the ending is really co- complicated, which it is, the ending as a concept, like from when the twist occurs, but kind of the last, the very last scene, like the last three minutes or something. yeah. yeah. I fucking loved it. And I feel like it was worth getting out of bed just to see the ending. Like how twisted it is and that these kids, not that these kids get their comeuppance, but that what the film is saying about like how kind of sinister this dialogue around like religious repentance is actually and what that effect that has on people. I thought that was just so delicious, that kind of ending. is actually scary? Not so much. No, not not particularly. But right. it does have a very disturbing implications. There are very disturbing implications in the ending. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah. would say this is worth watching just to get the last kind of like three minutes of glee. <laughs> I really, really, really I was that on about a high. Sleepaway camp. Uh, <laughs> wow. For that final shot. Yeah. I was on such a high when this film ended. <laughs> like overall, I thought it was a really unfortunate like execution of a great idea. But yeah. But yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if our Sydney listeners want to go along, I believe it's the closing night film for the Sydney Underground Film Festival. Yes, that's what I hear as well. Apart from that, I've been checking, and there doesn't seem to have a release or be available via streaming um, as yet, although I imagine that will change in the future. Anders, enter the century. So, Lucio Castro's uh, feature film debut, End of the Century, is, according to the Myth Program Guide, a bold statement about queer sexuality in the contemporary age. Um, I'm not sure that it's a statement necessarily. Anyway, it follows um, this guy. Basically, the first 15 minutes are a very interesting, wordless sort of um, realistic depiction of just, or naturalistic depiction of this guy walking around Barcelona. He's got like this very barren looking apartment. Um, He goes sightseeing, takes few photos, just sort of wanders around the city. Eventually he goes down to the beach where there's this other guy um, swimming who is like trying but kind of failing to flirt with. Um, so they have like this little moment, but not really. Is and this in Sitges, that famous like queer spot in Spain just oh. south of Barcelona? I was just interesting. Heard, it's just, it's sure. like legendary. It's like one of the, oh, well, it could be. If you're a queer person in Europe, that's a really good place. You, you got it. Yeah, right, okay. Um, so anyway, so they sort of have this moment, but it doesn't really pay off. Um, he goes back to his apartment. 
wakes up in the morning, makes a coffee and an espresso machine. It's all sort of presented <laughs> with no dialogue at all. Then um, we see him hanging out on his balcony and the guy from the beach is walking by and he yells out, hey, kiss, because he's got the kiss band t-shirt on. Then he invites uh, kiss back to the apartment and basically they, like, within five seconds, they're, like, full on making out on bed. They end up hooking up, having sex. Then he leaves. Then that night, you know, they're still messing with each other. They go out, they grab some, like, stuff from the local supermarket and go out into the sort of warm Barcelona night to, like, you know, have a bit of a date. And as they're talking, they sort of get... They have this sort of remarkable ease with each other. And then the other guy, Kiss, says, we've actually met before. And then the film suddenly goes back to this flashback 20 years prior with the same actors not being de-aged in any way, shape or form, <laughs> to 2000, to the end, end the quote-unquote end of the century. And we see how they originally met and the uh, guy with the kiss shirt had a girlfriend who the other guy was, like, best friends with and that's how they met each other. Then weird, interesting time things start happening. So it's the same actors, the same characters, but in different sort of relationships with each other so that goes from casual hooking up to this thing 20 years ago to another sort of depiction where um, they have child and they've been together for 20 years and then it gets ever more enigmatic and mysterious and it's wow, such that sounds bizarre it is and it this really film is, is only 80 minutes long yeah 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 right? but it does a lot of really interesting stuff and I'm still trying to work out what exactly but it <laughs> kind of feels like this queer spin on like a cross between like before midnight and sunset and mm. and certified copy yeah right. in that film yeah, yeah. you get this weird shifting sense of a relationship totally between two people. i fucking love that film oh and i love it too you know the, the quote-unquote twist yeah or you know the play that they're engaging in yeah when, exactly when it's revealed exactly you know. yeah listen to cultural capital analyze certified copy on a previous episode Absolutely. I can't remember yep. what yeah. Now, yeah. So this is kind of like a gay spin on that. But then fantastic. there's like um, a sort of calls to like Le Clis. There's like some, uh, which is one of my favourite films. So it's yeah. really speaking my language here. It really is. Um, yeah. And so I'm still, it It feels like, I don't know, like, and then I thought about um, bloody the Claire Denis Let the Sunshine In. Because that, you know how that feels yes. like a series of gestures on yes. or ideas about romance. I felt, is this a series of ideas or or concepts about a gay romance, gay futures, conversations about AIDS in there. Um, so, there's a lot going on. Yeah, but this is also it has some pretty divisive reactions. I've right? seen you- some people say, yeah, like it needed script editing. I'm not sure that it did, really. Okay, so I, I was watching it and I was like, okay, this is fine. And then there was the flashback and I thought, well, they don't look any younger. This is ridiculous. And then when you see what happens in that flashback, I'm going why on earth would you not remember this guy? Like, yeah. you're full-on having this beautiful dance sequence, which is amazing. And, like, you're full-on... Then they start making out with each other and, like, mm. all this other stuff. Like, surely you would remember that. And that when I started thinking that, then I thought, well, hang on. The film is obviously not expecting me to think that he literally cannot remember yeah. their... F- like, but that he's repressed it somehow. Yeah, or, or there was or, a brain injury or there was drugs. Yeah, or... Well, no, I don't think it's that literal. Uh, I think, yeah, or... His, what we're seeing at the start is maybe imagined and that's what really happened. Oh God, there's all sorts yes. of different ways to approach yeah, it. Okay. But really there's like a few different timelines going on. 
Cool. And I just really want to watch it again to get a better... I'll see it with you, Anders. I was meant to go. I had a Please. ticket and that was one of the ones I that I was just we get a chance for. to say it. It was just very interesting. Yeah, just sort of playing around with relationships and identity. It was really, really cool. So I don't know how people could ever see it. Yes, I'm sorry. It's not showing again. I wish it was. I hope it gets a berth at, I don't know, a film festival or something. It's just come out in the States, I see. Maybe it'll play at MQFF. Yeah, well... Yeah, good. We can but hope. We can. So, yeah, Mm. that's. I think it's the highlight of the festival for me just in terms of offering me things to ponder. Yes, and it sounds very unexpected. As well. Yeah, and very naturally mm. played. Like, there's no sort of artificial, uh, formal, you know, signification of, of these shifts in time or anything. Yeah. If you know okay. what I mean? Sure. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about The Wild Goose Lake, uh, which is Dion Yunnan's uh, follow up to Black Hole Thin Ice. This is actually playing on Sunday, the uh, 18th at 11 a.m if anybody decides they want to see it. It's basically a neo-noir set in a place in China, which is translates as Wild Goose Lake. And it begins with this fantastic performance by this actor, UJ. Like, his name is H-U space G-E. So it looks like the word huge, but split. But anyway, I'm, so I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. You p- can I just pronounce it? Huge. Huge. That's yeah. great. Thank you very much. So he does, he does this fantastic... Um, I like Turn. Hugh J though. That's, that's <laughs> it, there was quite a little laughter in the Astor when okay. his name came up. I've got to say. Um, so he plays this a, a gangster called Joel, mm-hmm. and so he's part of this motorcycle gang. An early uh, incident sees a friend of his uh, killed by another member of this gang, and uh, it's a very rainy night. And when he goes to get revenge, he accidentally shoots a policeman, which immediately shows you how much more important the life of a policeman is in China than uh, it is of, of anybody else, basically. Not just in China. Oh, so true. Mm. Yes, yeah, so true. Mm. So, but this is like become there's like army deployed. There's this huge yeah. manhunt yeah. goes on. There's like no resources are spared to try and track uh, him down. And so he kind of goes into hiding. But then there's a femme fatale, of course, steps up being a neo noir, who's this rem- amazing performance. Um, she's basically a sex worker, but then she gets assigned to go and find his wife to inform her that he's in a hiding out, and while all these people are looking for him, and there's an escape plan going on. And all the while, most of the scenes are shot at night. It's all around this place called Wild Goose Lake where sex workers are referred to as bathing beauties. So there's just these women who hang out on beaches and a man will walk up and to a pimp and say, and they'll make a transaction and she'll wander off with him. So there's a 300,000 uh, uh, Yunnan uh, bounty on him. And so he realises this amount of money could transform the life for her and, he, and they start having like, affection for each other, although it never actually becomes a fully-fledged romance. It's just obviously they have a lot of respect for each other and they really like each other. But also there's suddenly all these other people who want a cut of this uh, bounty. And so it basically becomes this whole kind of slow-moving but yet spiralling sort of neo-noir thing as they're kind of closing in on him and he's running out of places to hide. There's occasional uh, fantastic action sequences. One involving an umbrella is particularly memorable. Um, And it kind of goes on quite long, but also it's still a fantastically economically told, visually told story. So there's a lot of scenes where I'm just like, I never really noticed blocking much in movies, but this is like, I can see the way people who move characters are moving the way that they're using walls and shadows and sort of stuff is just really, really well thought out. It's obviously, you know, Yunnan is really, really great at this. It's been a bit divisive. Some people have found it a bit boring, a bit overlong. I feel like you could have lost a bit of time, time without losing too much. Um, but overall, it was really, really worth seeing and definitely worth seeing. What in experience. particular do you think they could have, you know, like r- removed from it to well, keep it the, s- the same in terms of tone? Well, there's, a, there's ways that the, the relationship is deepened, which I feel could have been done more economically. 
So there's a sequence in which they go out on a boat overnight, and they kind of they have they don't have sex, but they kind of they have relations, I suppose you'd say. Um, and I feel like that could have been done like in a much shorter space of time. There's a bunch of scenes where they're kind of closing in. He kind of gets away. They close in. He gets away. This sort of stuff. I feel there's some there's a lot of quite disorienting scenes as well involving these sorts of fantastic apartment buildings they have, where they're like there's like a courtyard, but there's like layers. There's like a seven story building, but it's like almost like a donut shape and wow. so there's stuff happening on different levels yep. and so it's, and you, it's quite easy to lose track of who is who because so, it's so dark and there's so much running around people with guns running around um, yeah, it's, but there's, it's, he's just such a good filmmaker and such a good storyteller. It didn't quite reach the heights of Black Hole Thin Ice for me. It sounds fascinating, Andy. I really wanted seeing, to see yeah. it and I just mm-hmm. couldn't make any of the sessions work, but I'm kind of hoping that it shows up on, well, if it doesn't get a release, that it shows up maybe on yeah, SBS, SBS on World Demand or Movies something or something like yeah. um, Black Hole Thin Ice. Was, yes. I think. Which I highly, we all, well, I highly recommend at least, yeah. So that's been a, a highlight for me. Cool. Mm. I loved um, Your Face, the Simon Young <gasps> yeah. Taiwanese. Film oh, yeah. That was essentially, I mean, the MIF um, guide, I didn't count them, but the MIF guide says it's a compilation of 13 expressive faces all training their gazes at the camera. And, I mean, it wasn't quite, like, it's defined as slow cinema, which I suppose maybe in one description you could call it. I would not call it slow cinema, but, you know, I guess it's negligible <laughs> what the definition is because some of the segments are simply the camera trained on a face and it's the face, you know, the face of the person on screen is, is not talking. This person is not talking. They're just looking. Either they're looking straight at the camera or they occasionally look around. They might be having obvious emotional expressions or they might just not. And the kind of point is, I mean, it's only 77 minutes, this film, and it's 13 segments. The point is that you're spending so long looking at people's faces. And I kind of thought... In a public space, right, if you see someone and you glance at them and you think they look fascinating, you're not allowed to look at them for a long time. That's true. Whereas in this film, you're kind of not only invited but welcomed, I mean, you know, to, to look at people's faces and kind of try and really hard to read their stories and their experiences and their feelings and... That was fascinating to me. and But some of the segments were people telling stories about their past. And so it was not as though you were having a really slow time watching this film about nothing really happening because occasionally, you know, shots of people's faces doing nothing but expressing would be interspersed with actual narratives that people were telling. And I found that really, really engaging. And in a sense... It wasn't enough for me. Like, you know, it had been right, promised. Interesting. To, it had been promised to slow cinema, and I was like, "Where's my slow cinema? <laughs> Excuse me. Give me like several hours of just staring at someone's crev- mm. the crevices of someone's face. Is, is it creepy to look at someone's reflection as if they're looking out a window and they're sitting opposite you on a tram? Is that an invasion of their personal space, uh, privacy? Look, no. I think that that's a th- something that you're allowed to do. Absolutely. Right. I think it's. It's much better than looking directly oh, at someone's yeah. face. Oh, yeah. Poor form. Like, you can't necessarily tell if someone's looking at your yeah. reflection. Mm-hmm. Or you can. But, you know, people are curious beings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that happens to everybody, I think. And so there's something about, you know, Simon Liang making this film that just feels like an, an invitation to, to do that, which I really, really appreciate. I mean, he's... For, 
one of a better description an auteur of slow cinema essentially right like he does this a lot and I found this film so kind of warm and generous to people's lives and to the audience I loved it so much I thought it was so but good it still did it disappointed you in some way though like it wasn't slow enough well I don't know if I would <laughs> like, I don't know if disappoint if the I don't know if the film disappointed me I think maybe that my expectations disappointed me okay. the description disappointed me have you seen Andy Warhol's screen tests would yes they, would I they, have. is it similar in that way yeah yeah actually that's a really interesting kind of recollection I think it's definitely in in that sense and I have seen some of them in in sequence right where you watch them kind of mm. all together I don't know maybe it was just the time that I gave this film rather than the the, the Warhol screen tests but I feel like this film is more invested in them as in their inner lives and the the Andy Warhol screen test is more interested in their, you know, outer kind of appearance. But maybe that's just what I know about Warhol. Mm. Um, and that's yeah. not really a fair, fair distinction that I've made. But, yes, that's, that's a, um, a great kind of comparison, I think, Andy. Whoa. Cool. Um, He's a fascinating filmmaker. Isn't he? Yeah, I think you and I saw the um, the VR that he done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> that he has made yeah. <laughs> last year. Yeah, and that, that was, was cool too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, and the other thing that I really... I'm just going to mention quickly because I feel like we've been like going on for a very long time mm. um, was the film Dwelling in the Fortune Mountains. Yes, I want to hear all about this. Yeah, so the filmmaker was Gu Xiaogang um, and it's a, a, allegedly the first in a um, series of three films about, I guess, about the same set of characters... And it was two and a half hours, just over two and a half hours long, this film, and kind of just really incredible as an experience to sit in the forum and watch watch it. Just, I mean, I can't even really remember any of the characters. I know one guy had a 19-year-old son who had Down syndrome and he was struggling with his medical expenses. Okay, and so this is set in the modern day? Yeah, yeah, right. um, and it's like a family, like kind of an adult family who are with, you know, the matriarch. I can't even remember if their dad is still alive. Like, these are, this is the thing I can't remember and I find sometimes that these film experiences are the most powerful when you can only remember fragments. Yeah. And I remember, like, segments of them doing certain things, like walking along um, this canal and there are a lot of like incredible shots of just the mountains and the like tiny little urban like nook that they live in within these mountains people eating I love films that deconstruct like the familial kind of you know structure and expected behavior in in mainland China Mm -hmm. or you know just in China it's so fascinating to me yeah yeah and this I don't know, it's such a fucking cliche, right? But this film just washed over me. Anyway, I loved it to bits and I would really like this guy to make the next two films <laughs> that he has allegedly planned right. to make. Okay, so does anything happen in this or are we watching like grad time exert its influence <laughs> on this family? I mean, stuff, yeah, yeah. Very I mean, that's a, put. that's a great question because of the way I described it. Not much really happens. And then at the end, like this 
big thing occurs, you know, this like culmination where you think this family exists in this little vacuum and the only conflicts that they face is like from other family members, right? And then at the end you kind of realise, oh shit, there's this actually they live in a society that that influences them and impacts on their behaviours. And they're on a mountain, let's not forget. (laughs) Well, they they live in a, in, Hmm. you know, a, a... a small township. I mean, a small township in China is like a hundred thousand yeah, people, yeah. right? Like, I don't know how many people live in this particular area, but um, but uh, it's not as poetic, I guess, as living on a mountain if you were in Australia, for sure. Mm. No, um, there, there has been a spate of films like about how quickly China is modernizing. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. This might be one of them. And it's you know, so it is quite fascinating. So I guess essentially, I mean, I think that's probably the automatic question of any two and a half hour movie: Does anything happen? <laughs> Yes, something happens at the end, and it doesn't really matter. Right. Okay. Oh. I mean, it, it matters to them. <laughs> cool. Mm. <laughs> but to me, it doesn't so much. Okay. Um, cool. And that's dwelling with the It's just in the sense of, you know, yeah, the way it's played or underplayed. Anyway, I'm I, still not really sure about it. And you can probably hear from my, <laughs> what we could maybe generously call a review, is that I don't really know how to describe it, but I really loved it a lot. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, okay, I'll continue my quick uh, gay week wrap-up. Uh, and then we dance, which yes. is my second favourite film so far at the festival, which is just a wonderfully made drama um, about a sort of gay awakening that a young man has in very conservative Georgia. Um, he's a dancer at the sort of state dance school, and he sort of basically begins this sort of romance with a, the new dancer. And sort of the stakes are established early on because we're sort of overhearing conversation that this other dancer has been banished um, from the company for basically um, having gay sex with someone on tour. And so he's been, his family have banished him, you know, all this other stuff. So you understand very quickly this is quite a conservative country. Uh, a point that is reinforced by the fact that a lot of the end credits are anonymous, so people haven't mm. put their names to right. their credits. Anyway, it so it deals with quite serious subject matter, but it does it in such a beautifully light way that really, you know, magically raises these key sort of heightened emotional moments out of that milieu and into their own thing where all of that doesn't matter where all of that falls away and you're left with these beautiful 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 moments which are helped along by the really quite great filmmaking from a wonderful tracking shot to another I mean look my favourite thing is to watch people dancing on screen there's another <laughs> the, the first of all the Georgian dance is quite incredible and is used to thematic like traditional effect. dance yeah traditional right. Georgia, yeah cool. yeah yeah. so they're like this big state sponsored and as we see in the opening introduction the sort of dance choreographer there um to the main guy, he's like, you know, you're not, you've got to be like a monument, and he's too, he's too fancy, he's <laughs> too um, busy. Yeah, he's he's he, yeah. I mean, the idea is he's not he's not you know as traditionally masculine as he should be um, in that role. So you get all that on early on, anyway. But he comes back and does this amazing sort of defiant dance right at the end of the film uh, in his style, and it's just like, is it like incredible. strictly boring? It. <laughs> <laughs> 
I would say it's even more emotionally resonant than Strictly Boring, um, although less sequence. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just there, and look, there's an amazing other dance scene, which is a contemporary dance scene uh, with Robin uh, on the soundtrack. This is a Swedish co-production, so there's lots mm, of great music, right. lots of great pop music, and also this Georgian music going on. And I just thought it was really. Really well made. There's not a single wasted minute, which I really appreciated. Um, you know, coming the second week of the festival, I was a bit sick of... There was nothing about it self-indulgent. Yeah, great. I've heard lots of <clears throat> raves about this film. Yeah, and I really I like just, it. You know, I think I heard after the first screening and I just couldn't make it work to get to the second, but um, that's really good to hear. You know, with that amount of kind of praise, you think, yes, something's going to get a release in Australia. Yeah, yeah. and it's very... Mm. I don't mean this in any way in a negative way, but it is an accessible, it's accessible, very mm. accessible. So I would hope it would get some sort of release because it deserves one. I think it deserves to be seen by a wider audience. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, and look, it does hit some narrative beats that we may now be familiar with, um, particularly in sort of gay romance stories. Um, the familiar beats haven't stopped other movies, like Love, Simon. It's apparently full of familiar beats, but that's still found a big audience. Yeah, and no, something I, like this, it sounds like if you're seeing a brand new culture that you probably haven't seen on film before yeah. that often, do I, I, yeah. could be, it's revolutionary to put that those sorts of traditional beats. Well, it, yeah, literally, particularly because uh, as the end credits tell you, you know, it, it, it the film means something very different in its home country. Um, so definitely watch, uh, recommend that. I saw the Almodovar. Have either of you seen this, Pain and Glory? No. Yeah. Oh, you have? Yeah. I, I quite like I don't think I... No, maybe I did love it. I really did like it. I thought I, it avoided the histrionics and like high emotional melodrama that mm. you can sometimes sink into. I felt it quite... I mean, emotional, but very restrained yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful. I loved his apartment. We m- might get it, yes, we might get deeper into this around its release date. Yeah, okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, not seeing it at the festival because I thought it will definitely you yeah. know, be available at yeah. some point. So. And late October, I think it's released. Okay. Oh, great, great, great. We'll come back to it because it's but a really interesting tell me about film. Um, Sequin in a Blue Room? Sequin in a Blue Room. Um, so this is a directorial debut of this guy who's just graduated from the AFTRS. Uh, I think it was his grad film. Congratulations. Um, yeah, congratulations. Uh, it's hey, um, and it does really great things with uh, what I would imagine is a very small budget in terms of the look. Very stylish mm-hmm. film. Um, basically, it follows this uh, teenager. He's sixteen in the film. He's openly gay to his dad. He lives with his dad. He's openly gay. He's meeting people on like a fake version of Grinder, and there's lots of on-screen um, Does it have screens. a name, this fake version? Yes, of it does. Uh, Anon, I think it's okay. from memory. Sure. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's, it really gets the sort of scrolling right, this film, because you know how I have a thing for on-screen to be just screens? You message us immediately yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah. it, it gets it right, because it's, it's such a high part of the film. And there's all of these great long shots of him, you know, in his classroom where there's people talking around him and he's just, like, eyeing his phone, which he's got, like, down on his leg, and you see what he's scrolling through on the screen and then you see the juxtaposition between this sort of really hypersexual version of, um, you know, of, of what it means to be gay, I guess, going on in on the screen, on screen. You juxtapose that with the very mundane, yeah. uh, real context, I guess, mm-hmm. that he's in. I found that very interesting. So he calls himself Sequin and the Blue Room is a sex party. So the uh, sort of 
the centrepiece of the film, and I think the strongest bit is this sex party in a blue room where right. a sequin is in the blue room, mm-hmm. uh, hence the title, and it's stunningly shot, like really quite... Is the like, sequin a metaphor for something? That's a good question. He wears a sequin shirt <laughs> and he leaves oh, behind yeah. little bits of it uh, yeah. wherever he goes. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I thought that was great. It, the thriller elements were quite interesting. I think it takes a bit of a... It sort of veers very wildly into a sentimental direction towards the end, which I'm not sure the film really sold me on. Um, but, uh, yeah, just in terms of the style style for days. Yeah, so, right, okay. So, it's just like yeah. a, an amazing calling card, like an announcement. Can we some get, like, here? start a petition to get that on the film's Australian release poster, Style for <laughs> style Days? Style for Days. And oh, it's yes. <laughs> Please. <laughs> this, I think yeah. in my daily review review, I said, this is a stylish little number. Uh, <laughs> Were you talking about the sequin <laughs> top or the film? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Fantastic. Film. Great. I okay. Yeah, that's the end of my gay week. <laughs> Wrap up. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I guess we are running out of time, but I did mention yes. at the beginning that I was going to talk about Happy New Year, Colin Bursted, which is uh, Ben Wheatley's film. Hi. Welcome. Hello, Mr. Bursted. Uh, Colin. The old man. Hello. Can you believe this place? It's like a wedding cake. I invited David. Did you talk to anyone about that? It was meant to be a surprise. Oh, this is going to be a massive there's a reason I've not been back for five years. We've all done things in our past that we're ashamed of. You need to get your house in order. Let's call a truce on this thing. Help me. He needs to be talked to. You want him to leave? You have a right to be here. Kicking off over there. Are you trying to upset me? Yeah, I'm trying to get a reaction, yeah. Something needs to be done. Don't think, act. And this is a really interesting one. I don't know if anyone has seen his previous films. I think we talked about High Rise here on the podcast before. Blue. He's done Kill List. He's done Sightseers. Green. Um, he did um, a Field in England. A Field in England. A Field in England. I've seen that. Film. That's a good. That's his Free best film. Free Fire was his film last year. Yeah, that's I agree. Maybe what yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. Anyway, this is a sort of a Mike Lee-ish style of British family drama comedy ensemble piece. So basically, it's about a, a new year for the Bursted family, and it focuses on Colin, who's like a fairly mouthy kind of go-getter guy. But basically what it seems like is Wheatley's got them together in this mansion where they're having this, which they've, uh, they're Airbnb, it seems like they've Airbnb'd from this actual lord who owns the mansion but lives in this very small apartment nearby because lords don't have that much money in this day and age, mm. apparently, because you know, the upkeep of their... The upkeep, yeah, yeah. this yeah, is it's a ridiculous. thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah so yeah. anyway, this is the first time this lord has Airbnb'd it and this fam- the Bursted family have turned up. And so it's this interesting thing where like cut class in England is suddenly turned on its head a bit by these kind of like very sweary drink like alcoholic family have turned up to have these big family dramas and stuff and so the the matriarch of the family stumbles over the step on the way in and she gets all this attention and she gets a wheelchair and she gets she basically maintains her position by seemingly faking this injury and all throughout suddenly you know you introduce this quite large range of people there's maybe like at least a dozen characters who are all part of this family and you kind of get cut so Wheatley cuts between them really quickly so you get like five seconds of this and then three seconds of that and then ten seconds of this is and this like a horror movie no idea, no it's just or? a drama and it, but it's okay. also the comedy just really naturally bursts out of these characters yeah. and so in the end you know he says it's written and directed by Ben Wheatley but with additions from the cast and he really oh, feels like that cool. in the way that Mike Lee makes his films where he just workshops the hell out of everybody for months and months and months and so everyone's kind of made their own characters sounds interesting it is really interesting and yeah i was not at all like intrigued by it but now i 
now I am. Yeah, and it's really funny. Like, mm. the humour really sneaks up on you as well because it's all just kind of naturally these people are coming into this mansion, this, like, ca- castle, essentially. Yeah. You know, and at the beginning, the Lord, you know, talk, explains how D-Day was planned here, you know, or at least, it, no, it wasn't actually planned right here, but they had drinks here. This sort of stuff, like you know, so it's like it's, it's beautiful sort of you know setting, but then the family dynamics just kind of play out and they amp up, and then uh, you know a, a, a black sheep son turns up who's abandoned his wife, you know, and their kids and stuff like that. So it's it's all this sort of stuff, but also it's all you know you're approaching midnight as well, mm. and so you're not really sure how it's all going to pan out. Cool, but it's really nicely done. And It'll it get a release, I'm sure. Yeah, it should do, and it's a beautiful credit sequence. Where yeah. it kind of it ends with this dance party with the whole family, but then as they're telling you the credit, like the, you know, cinematography, and then the name of the cinematographer, and then they show you the cinematographer holding the camera in the dance party with everybody else, and then you know the second assistant oh. director, and then she cuts the, a picture of the second assistant director. Oh, cool! With a, yeah, it's right. really nice. So it's sort of really like, inclusive. You know, yeah, collaborative. Yeah, ve- yeah, feels very collaborative. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So yeah, I do recommend having awesome. New Year Callum bursted. Um, cool. Well, that might be all we've got time yes, for. Yes, it is. But we'll be coming back to you shortly. Um, with even more. With even more There's myth. so many more things. Even more movies. Hashtag movies for uh, yes, days. Yes, because once upon a time in Hollywood has been released, but we haven't all seen it. But as soon as we have, you'll hear about it. Thank you very much for listening. We think you're great. Thank you.